0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back, everybody. We are today, we are in Peggy's Recovery Corner with a very, very special friend. Do you know that you're a very special friend to me?
1: Oh, thanks, Pej. Likewise. I adore you.
0: I adore you, too. So it, it's Elisa, right? I mean, some people call you Lisa, too, right? Yes,
1: yes. Elisa when my mom used to, when I was in trouble. So you call me
0: Lisa. Okay, yeah. If I'm in trouble, my mom would say, Pejman! <laughs> when, she's, when she's in good spirits, it's Peggy or Peggy. So, uh, so good to have you on here, Elisa. Um, Elisa, welcome to the corner, is in Florida at this time. But I think we met in certain circles in California, in, in uh, Los Angeles, Orange County, because we both are colleagues in the field and, and other, other places where people congregate, we have met too. But I, this is usually how it works. We want to know about you like where are you from where were you born where were you raised we'll get into the other stuff afterwards you know uh what had happened and then uh your recovery process so where are you from who are you tell me
1: hi hi i'm gonna go i'm lisa i'm an alcoholic that's naturally (laughs) to me um yes i was born and raised in west palm beach florida in fact i am looking at the hospital i was born at right out of my window which is full circle it's very weird to be living back right off a of flagler drive in west palm beach okay. so yeah like i can even see the room that i was born at uh, i'm just kidding but yes <laughs> yes but i was born and raised here um so i'm a native floridian i even went to college here And um, taught high school here. Uh, And I've lived really here all my life. I lived here until I moved to Los Angeles and lived where you live for two years, which I loved LA. And of course, I love my home. But um, yeah, So
0: you had had never really been out of Florida until you moved to LA a couple years ago and then moved back?
1: Not to live. I mean, we would go, my family would go to um, North Carolina Uh for the summers. My parents had an art gallery up in North Carolina. So we would go up there for the summers, Beach Mount, Blowing Rock, Banner Elk. And uh, we would have like little jaunts to North Carolina. But that was more like just vacationing. Uh But I had never lived anywhere but here. So it was nice to kind of venture out. I just in my heart knew there was a big world out there and I had manifested, I think all my life to live in LA since I was a little girl. Um, of course I wanted to be a movie star. So I thought when I moved to LA the last couple of years, I thought I was gonna come up there and be a movie star. Yeah, um, didn't work out that way but I did have a transformational experience which was spiritual in nature and, um, and, I, and I wouldn't change any of it for anything.
0: Hmm. Okay, so let's back up. So your upbringing in Florida, uh, did you have both your parents in your life? Did you have any siblings?
1: I do have, um, I have a younger sister. She's three years younger than me. And I did, both my parents were married um, for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a a couple of half um, sisters that I didn't really know, and a half brother. Mm -hmm. which there was, um, you know, some tumultuous stuff and trauma around that right. uh, half brother. Yeah. So.
0: Hmm. Now, did you, uh, when you were growing up, there was, were you troubled? Did you do good in school? Were you scholastic?
1: You know what, Apesh, I would like to say that I was um, the black sheep, and I was, you know, like I can see and in fact. I'm um, also living right next to the elementary school that I went to too, and I can see that little girl um, sad and alone and on the playground by herself. So I was a very troubled kid. Um, I, I was, uh, you know, I like bent, not broken, right? That um, right. I was that, that little kid that, that thought she was broken. And I didn't really do good in school. I was bullied and I also had the trauma around my half brother as a little girl, too. So, like, I felt like I was that square peg in the world that didn't really fit into the round circle. So, that, yeah, that now, talk was my- about,
0: Talk about that bullying part. When you were bullied, who were you bullied by?
1: Um, I was bullied by some of my ki- uh, some of the kids at school when I was a little girl, and then I was bullied like I don't know. Maybe I just wore the like loser on my head kind of thing as a kid. So I, I, I feel like that's how I showed up, you know. So because I was bullied like growing up, so yeah. I, I. Carried- Only
0: like were they verbally making fun of you? Or yeah. they physically, physically doing anything to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as much physical. It was more the emotional. So like I was. The kid that was last to be picked on the kickball team. I was the kid that had the frown and that was always like kicking rocks in the corner by herself, you know. And then I grew up to be that that girl in middle school too. We mm-hmm. moved up to Jupiter when I was 11, and then I was bullied also like through high school. It wasn't until I found my own voice, I think it was when I was maybe in 10th grade that I did start to get friends. I really didn't have any friends until I was um, in like mid high school age.
0: So you are kind of a loner.
1: I was, I was that sad kid. Like I could, you know, like all the pictures that I had before uh, 10th grade-ish, I was um, alone and and frowning. Mm -hmm.
0: I think sometimes uh, bullying, like it can it can affect you more when it's verbal or when people are making fun of you as opposed to physical because if physically like if you get beat up because a bully beats you up like you were resilient like we come we bounce back from that and we're okay but it's it's the other stuff that's like more like there's emotional turmoil that that we encounter as a result of being bullied I was bullied a lot too. I can totally I I can relate to that, especially being a Persian boy during, you know, like the late 70s and 80s in Salt Lake City, Utah, where nobody was Persian. No, like we were not Mormon. And so I got called a lot of names, a lot of derogatory names. So I understand that the feelings that go behind that. Um, When did you first uh, get into things that were going to make you feel comfortable in your skin as far as substances?
1: well i'll tell you something you know like you talk we talk you're talking about that like the the uncomfortable and the skin like i also carried a lot of shame too you know like i had a critical parent i you know i'm, I'm my parents i have a, my pops died about a year ago but my mom and i have a great relationship now like i've got such freedom around that now but I had that critical parent, I didn't trust my parents, I didn't believe they were gonna protect me, I was ashamed of who I was, so I had—I didn't have that comfortable in my skin, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there was so much sadness around that, so it's like I remember when I took that first, I, I wanna say, now I'm gonna date myself, it was Boone's Farm, right? Like I had some friends that, and I was a, a sophomore, my girlfriend, Lisa and my friend, Courtney, they had this house on the beach. And I remember we drank, I want to say it was grape or strawberry Boone's farm. And when I first took a sip of that boy, oh yeah, I was so pretty. I was so smart. I was the bell of the ball. And I, and I, that was a spiritual experience for me, Pej. Like mm-hmm. I changed that for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was comfortable. Like I knew that I had arrived and I wanted that feeling for the rest of my life. And you I was
0: said, 10, "How 10, old were you when that happened?"
1: About yeah. 15. Yeah.
0: Okay. How did you guys get the boons from from like the store or where?
1: Well, we had we had older friends that bought it, and and I and I like I just remember never going home again. Like I basically ran away from then on as much as I could, and all we did was drink and hang out at the beach. And then I like became popular, and I like had a life and friends, and alcohol did for me what uh, what I couldn't do for myself. Like, that's when I started to live when okay. I was about 15 and
0: 16. So this is like the 10th grade, like right around the time that you said you actually started to get friends. And during that time growing up in Florida, was it like, I mean, obviously we know in South Florida, it's a very beachy area. There's a lot of mm-hmm. activities, like a lot of kids like to go to the beach and party and do all that stuff. So now you've done the Boone's Farm then what like were you how, how were you doing in school during this time uh school, <laughs> well, school. <laughs>
1: we were on the beach we had bonfires we had parties we had friends we had fun and of course i was still in school i um, mean, you know i was on the diving team um i did play soccer i didn't do sports up until then you know of course that was supposed to save me too uh, but as soon as i found the drink the parties the friends the fun all of the other stuff went out the window because I like I lived for the party.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it just alcohol or did you start to get into other things? You know what? I didn't start to get
1: into the other things till a little bit later. Um, I didn't really even discover the high powered sedatives until like like into my college years. Um, yeah. But I was I was fine with anything that could take me out of my out of me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, again, later, like it just, it didn't really matter what it was. Uh, I just put whatever in my system and then say, am I going up? Am I going down? It's all good.
0: So you, okay. So when you got into your college years, were you starting to mess around with uh, stimulants, things that. Yes. Yes. I mean, like the effect of the alcohol, even more intensified. So, I mean, this is, we're talking about Florida here. I know
1: it's it was fun. the age of ecstasy too. Like we oh, were so like beautiful. doing Molly a lot back in those yeah. days. And I okay. went away to University of Florida, and of course I wasn't in or accepted into the University of Florida. I went mm-hmm. to the junior college, but mm-hmm. yeah, like I was, I you know I made friends there too, and mm-hmm. we were just always partying.
0: So mm-hmm. you were still you were still trying to go to school and all that. I mean, obviously, if you're going to junior college, um, did did this lifestyle Kind of take form into a way to where it was becoming a problem. Was there any problems that started to occur? Any kind of crises? Any police interaction or anything like that?
1: I mean, my whole life was a crisis page. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, failing out. Oh yeah, like um, um oh my good, nervous breakdowns. Um, I mean, I thought it was it was cute to write papers drunk and then turn them in um, and like go to class in different uh, color shoes and all that stuff. But like that didn't bother me, of course. You know, I remember when I failed out um, like in the middle of my year uh, mm-hmm. at school. And I, and I like literally had to move out of my apartment and drive home and drop all my classes and stuff. I mean, those were just the beginning of the
0: consequences, but
1: are you kidding? That didn't really what, Were
0: you like put on academic probation or something like that? Or was it just, uh, it kind of- I don't,
1: I don't think that I, I think I had like a one point something. So I, I think I withdrew and went sure. home. <laughs>
0: kind of hard to focus and pay attention in school when you're not really in your right mind. Let's um, just
1: say college took me about 10 years to graduate. I mean, I did get a degree, but I didn't
0: really care right. um, at, at the time. So at the time when you left school, what did you do? What, what, what did your life become? Like? I came
1: home and waitressed. What does every alcoholic do? We waitress.
0: Right. <laughs> and this was in West Palm?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I got a job actually at the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater, and that was, you know, then I was really off to the races because we could, I could work, um, you know, a morning shift, an afternoon shift, and then a night shift, and then then I was going out to the bars um, at night, you know, like.
0: Was it mostly it, drinking, or were you doing like Coke or anything like that, just partying?
1: That is when my cocaine career started. So, yeah, I had discovered cocaine then too. And then that was really when I, um, you know, thought that I found something that that worked because I could drink and stay up. Mm-hmm. And those were when the benders, um, the prodig- prodigious benders uh, were, uh, were a part of my fun.
0: Any uh, DUIs or anything like that?
1: The DUIs came a little bit later when I got into the career world. Um, I actually um, was in sales right out of college for several years. Mm-hmm. But of course, I blew those jobs up. Uh, again, didn't really care. Just like I didn't care about blowing up relationships either. Um, you know, I like to say that I was, you know, I could stand on the back of a boat and see the wake of my uh, wreckage. And that's mm-hmm. my life, right? Like, it's a wake. Yes. Um, and that, you know, that I just would, would blow everything up, but I did get into teaching high school. And those are when the DUIs came I became a, a Palm beach County school teacher. And I uh, got um, some DUIs. The first one was a five car pileup with a, a student in the rival high school. Um, but you, of,
0: caused, you caused that?
1: Yeah. And of course, of course, that was not going to stop me. Um and, and you know what, I'll tell you, Like I, I like to say that God had his protection hand on me because I never was exposed. There was never me on the blotter all over the newspapers saying Palm Beach County school teacher with a DUI. And then even with my second DUI, um, which I hit a car that hit a tow truck that hit another car. Um, I wasn't exposed then either. You know, I, I wonder if maybe the exposure would have stopped me a lot sooner. But because it didn't, I continued on with the drinking career up until late 30s.
0: Okay, so th- these DUIs started to happen in your late 20s. You're a ninth grade teacher, you're getting one and two uh, DUIs, but nobody ever really finds out about it. And that's why you continue to live your lifestyle the way that you were? Yes. I mean, in some areas of our country, if that was to happen, like. That person would have lost their job on their, probably the first DUI.
1: Right. And I but
0: didn't. This, this is Florida, you know.
1: Like, yeah. Is- <laughs> Florida woman. Florida woman. I'm too
0: busy in Florida. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so then you got in your 30s and you how long did you say you were teaching ninth grade?
1: Well, I taught for 14 years. One thing that actually did happen to me is I tried to outsmart the Palm Beach County school system mm-hmm. and I didn't take an ethics course. So Florida did come down on me and say you are supposed to adhere to our rules and take an ethics course. I was I was to report my DUI's in a certain amount of time and I tried to outsmart the school system and and I didn't take a college ethics course and the state of Florida did eventually um, suspend my teaching certificate Mm -hmm. and in that time there was a six-day overlap and I lost the high school that I was teaching at which was a devastating blow and when that happened I um that window was that door was shut I lost my tenure I lost basically lost everything and I didn't know what to do, so that's when I took a job as a tech at a halfway house, which led to me being an alumni director at a treatment center in Delray, uh, which opened the door for a whole other career for me.
0: Wait, 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 wait! You weren't even sober, and you got that job?
1: I I was sober for three years when oh, you had I gotten sober. Yes, I was a well, sober.
0: Back up! I want to ask a question. When you were teaching? Yeah. In all that time? Yeah. Fourteen years. Yeah drinking and driving sometimes. Yeah. Did, did you ever go to class and teach under the influence?
1: You know what? I'd like to say that <laughs> I didn't. I'd like to say that I didn't. Um,
0: You'd like to say that you didn't. I that mean say that you, that did?
1: I, you know, I thought I was like Cameron Diaz, right? Like right. teacher smoking the blunt in the car and going in. I would like to say I didn't. I, I wasn't doing shots in the parking lot, Pej. But there was many times that I was extremely hungover and I was popping a movie in. Okay, you know, My students did see uh, a not so effective teacher at times where they would send me to counseling or they would be like, Lisa, there's something not so effective about you. Are you OK? You know, and, and I
0: was. Would you not admit it when you'd go to counseling? <laughs> well,
1: I well, get through it. Like what do we do, Pej? Right? Like, and I'm speaking for myself, but I—I'll
0: speak for myself. I went to counseling when I was in art school, (laughs) and I told them everything is wrong in my life, and everything is falling apart except for one thing that I neglected to leave out. Yeah, I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) I'm I'm a drug addict. Right? (laughs) Like that part. Like I can't. So you didn't tell them, obviously, and they probably knew.
1: Well, I would imagine because when I did finally stop drinking, everybody knew. You know, I thought I was outsmarting the whole world. Like, you know, I never thought alcohol was the problem. Like, I'm having an emotional breakdown, right? Mm -hmm. Like, even when I did have several emotional breakdowns and I ended up at places that I didn't really want everybody to know that I was there, right? Right. Uh, Or talking to people that I didn't really want anybody to know I was talking to, professionals that I was lying to.
0: Right.
1: It was never the alcohol, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It was the but the alcohol
1: of- was always my solution. Like, yeah. how, how can I give up my best friend? Mm-hmm. It, and then it would come around like a boomerang and near cut me to ribbons. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you get into your th- 30s now. You've been teaching for a while. Then you got this job as a tech in a treatment center because you got sober. Why would you get sober for those three years?
1: Well, um, I was dry, okay? So I didn't work any steps mm-hmm. in a 12 step program. Right. And what happens to so? St- for
0: those that don't know what dry means, that means like white knuckling means what? Can you please <laughs> explain that so those that don't know can learn? And if they, and some that do know can be reminded.
1: Yeah, so I had, I didn't, the solution to um, a real alcoholic like me is I needed to have a spiritual experience as a result of working 12 steps and a 12 step fellowship. So I needed another solution other than alcohol, I needed to recover, change, my insides needed to match my outsides and I needed to have um, another solution other than the booze. I needed to have the solution of a higher power and I needed to have the solution of helping others. And instead of doing that, what I did was I was acting out in a lot of ways. Um, And I was restless, irritable and discontent. And I basically was in the rooms of a 12 step fellowship and I wanted to die. And that was really uncomfortable. Um, so without doing that, um, it was a very miserable place to be. Like you talked about white knuckling and I felt like a cat in a tree just hanging in there, Mm -hmm. hanging in there and hanging in there was really, really painful. I couldn't, I was prey to misery and depression. I was of no use to others. I couldn't have personal relationships. I was full of fear. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when I was in that place, uh, Being the thought of a drink was better, or -hmm. the thought of dying was better, and and like the only people that could really understand that were people that were in the twelve step fellowship that were like, Lisa, if you don't do something, you will die. So I had to do something. I had to work. So that
0: three you're talking about three years time that you stayed sober and you're working in treatment. You were dry during all that time. Yeah,
1: yeah, at least for for the
0: years of not. Angry, for, close like, with,
1: to, close this, to, but you know, I'm acting out in other ways, like with um, other things, like okay, so opposite sex, maybe, right?
0: I was you were going to go there. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. not
0: so good. <laughs> yeah. So, so I
1: was going so, to the meeting before the meeting, right? And like right. checking out all the cute guys, and then right. maybe like shopping too much or. You know, the sober volleyball just didn't do it for me, right? Like, the Denny's meetings didn't do it for me. Like, that was not going to keep me sober, happy, joyous, free, and useful. Sure. I wasn't. did,
0: Did the job become your recovery kind of? Like, that was it? Like, there was really no recovery? Like, I'm helping people in the workplace. That's my recovery? Is that kind of what it looked like?
1: Well, I crossed them up. I'll tell you that. Because when I was the alumni director, I know that I was doing, like, big book stuff with all the girls. And then when I got fired from the job because I was not uh, keeping boundaries with them,
0: yeah,
1: I was, uh, a lot of the girls uh, relapsed. And of course I thought it was my fault. So there was no boundaries. There was no, there was just, yeah, it was my recovery. I, and I, you know, and I didn't, I didn't have any, I didn't have any spirituality and I there was no um, emotional uh, balance in my life. There was no foundation
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and there was no, I wasn't helping anybody. And I wasn't. You were, certain-
0: you were not demonstrating what a woman of recovery would really represent or be like.
1: No, there was no integrity. I wasn't walking with God. I wasn't walking with any kind of soundness of mind.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay so then after the 3 years what happened did you did you relapse
1: No but I'll tell you uh, I was between I like to say a bottle a big book which is uh-huh. the program and and a bullet Yeah and I'm glad I about, didn't. I'm glad bi-ideation. I didn't but I was close
0: yeah. Okay so how long have you been sober right now
1: uh, 10 I just celebrated 10 years
0: so then, after the three years, what happened? Did you get plugged into something different?
1: I did. I, I, I did. Um, Delray Beach, Florida, is kind of like the uh, it was yeah. the capital. So I actually went to this specific meeting down there, and it was called the Four Facts Meeting. And it was a really cool group of drunks, and I saw these people that were doing something different. I don't know where I was that right. I didn't notice it before, but they were they were they brought. The program to life from you right they weren't checking chicks they weren't like chasing newcomers they were actually working steps they were actually helping other people and altruistic which is what we're supposed to anything. do which yeah, they, yeah they didn't want anything in return like they yes. were usefully happily whole and i'm like wait what's happening here hmm so like these people were armed with the facts about themselves like they had had a spiritual awakening as a result of working the steps they had transformed they had changed
0: sure
1: as a result of that they had their hand in the hand of god's and i said all right maybe i'll give this a try and they seemed happy right like and i wasn't right. so i let somebody take me through the steps and i had that same experience that experience with god and you know i, I became a useful member of alcoholics anonymous
0: Okay. So this is, this is where it gets juicy and important. Like, I mean, all of it's important, but this is, you'd now have like just lit the pilot light inside of my spiritual (laughs) being like here's, here's what matters to me. And I hope whoever's watching or whoever hears this or sees this, this is what's of vital importance. You've just described what I encounter and what you encounter all of the time. We help people nationally get into the treatment space. Yes, A lot of them go to treatment centers. Uh, and when they're going there in a therapeutic clinical setting, they're working through their shit, like whatever their traumas are, whatever their upbringing was, whoever hurt them, all that stuff. That's clinically. Yes. But the majority, the mass majority of these centers will send people to self-help groups or to groups that are 12 step based smart recovery. Uh, There's so many different ones, but like, the majority, the mass majority, go to 12-step meetings, whether it be AA NA, CA. What I see, and I'm sure you see this a lot too, is that people go to treatment wherever they may go. They may leave their respective towns and go to Florida, California, anywhere, right? And then they're involved in that community. but the problem is is if they don't continue to stay involved and continue to do what those what the 12-step uh, world, Requires for long-term sobriety, for permanent sobriety, and I right. know to some that sounds cocky, but we we already know. Like that, said, per, that perm, like that's why people end up depressed, yeah, a prey to misery. They may go back to their home. They may be back in their comfort zone. They may be in the lion's den, right where they used to drink and use. They may be amongst old friends that, if they don't have that spiritual and mental defense, they're gonna drink or use again. And they find themselves loaded again, and they don't know what the fuck happened, like what went wrong. And you just described it perfectly. You got to a point within three, I thought you were going to say after three years, you relapsed.
1: Yeah, a lot of people thought I was going to.
0: And sometimes I think uh, a physical relapse on substances is not as bad as uh, a spiritual bankruptcy, like to the point where you're... In AA or you're in twelve step groups and you're dying inside and you are really contemplating how the fuck am I going to manage these emotions and and, and this stuff without fucking putting a bullet in my head or, or figuring some other way of killing myself out, right? So I I love that you you didn't and you were I believe that God di- like divinely intervenes in our lives and puts the right people in our lives at the right time to say the right things. It's just up to us to be able to fucking like grasp that and say you know what I do need to make a fucking difference I need to change my mind that's why like I was having a conversation with somebody very close with me last night that's why like when we see a lot of people dying from fentanyl overdoses or heroin or drinking themselves to death or Xanaxing like just doing so much Xanax until they they're hospitalized i believe any of those people If at some point have been on the path of recovery, there's always messages from messengers that are being transmitted and they could be getting these messages, but it's, it's in those moments where they think, you know what, I'm just going to get high this one more time. It's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to overdose. Bullshit. It's that one time because you've already, you've been presented with but with information from people that are armed with facts. And if yeah. you don't take that stuff to heart, you're, you're pretty much as good as gone.
1: Right. Well, and that's true. And it's interesting too, because when I moved to California, I had progressed in my career working in treatment and I got a job in California. And I moved up there, right, at eight right. years. And I had a lot of sponsees here and I was just moving right along with my program. Right. And I thought, I've got this. So I come to California and I lost my job. Like the first few months that I was there. Mm-hmm. And I met a woman up there that's in that group that you know. Right. And she's a part of the society that you belong to, that I belong to in California. And I was resting on my laurels. I did not have any sponsees. I was not working in um, the program that I had worked here and she looked at me and she said, you're 3000 miles from home. You're not spiritually fit. You're not helping anybody. And if you don't get back to work, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And I was eight years sober and I was not even living in California six months. And I looked my, what she I mean think- when
0: she said get back to work, does she mean work in the field or work in working with others? working with others. That's the fucking key to all of this. That's it. She goes, I can can see it in
1: you. She goes, you're headed for a relapse and you will not make it back. And I was like, Whoa. So I started to do, I I got back to causes and conditions with a gentleman that we both know. And I mean, he's helped a lot of us, but doing a thorough inventory Mm -hmm. with a workshop that we know, Yes. And getting back to helping others saved my life. Sure. Mm-hmm. So and she saved my life. So and I'm forever grateful.
0: When I asked you for a topic for today's uh, podcast. Yes. Did you pick emotional sobriety because at some point in, in your recovery, you've experienced that lack that of point, lack of spirituality to the point where your emotions are. I mean, that happened with Bill W. I know it did. That even happened with him he, like, from what I understand during the time of writing the 12 and 12, he was going, like he was suffering from depression. So, yeah. so what do you, how is, how is life now? You're at 10 years sober, right? When did you turn 10 already?
1: I did. I turned when was 10 that? in September 19. Oh, that
0: was one month ago. Happy birthday. Yeah, okay, thank I, you. I, think I remember that. Um, how's life now? Cause I know that you moved back to Florida because you needed to get some things taken care of out there. Um, are you happy?
1: You know what? Um, I have had God walk with me in this journey back here to Florida, and I am very grateful that that my sobriety is intact and my spirituality is strong because with my weakness, I am strong, right? Right. Like that's the reading I did today. Um, when my father died, I woke up a, a couple months later, and I and I and I knew that I needed to come home and and be here for my mother. You know, she is going through some challenges of her own. My sister needed me, and I'm here for a reason. Um, I'm grateful that I came back. Um, I know that no matter what. I will be fine. I will be okay because I am safe and protected. And if I stick close to him and perform his work well, I'm going to be solid. You know, I am usefully happily whole uh, Pej. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that my emotional sobriety has been at risk Many times in my sobriety, but I know what to do. Like I have the solution of God, right? I have the solution of helping others. And when all is said and done, I can go back to that foundation.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's what I do every single time.
0: Okay. So with that said, that's from, from coming from you. When you, and I'm sure you've in 10 years, like you probably hear this a lot, when you meet people in recovery that have been in recovery for a minute, depending on how long, it doesn't matter—five years, five months, ten years, twenty years. When you hear the the, the saying, I've, "I'm falling," I've fallen off the beam, or I've, I've, um, I'm starting to really uh, think that this doesn't work. This way of life doesn't work. Or I'm always in my head. Or I got, I feel like I'm carrying the world, like the weight of the world, on my shoulders, and I don't know how to how to make it through this. Or I feel really depressed lately. What do you tell people? I mean, obviously they're going through emotions, right? What do you tell people without sounding like you're speaking from a spiritual old top?
1: Well, I mean, there are times that I've been that person, right? And I do get like overwhelmed with life stuff, but you know what? I then have to get out of me uh, because I'm self-centered by nature, right? Like, and I have changed and that spiritual experience that I've had has taken me to a place where I need to be other centered. Right. You know? So if I'm so in that place where I am self, right? Like where I'm playing God. And when I say I'm playing God, I mean trying to control the ballet, the stage, the set, then I have to look at that's the the place that's dangerous, right? That's the place that's going to keep me in self pity. So one, one thing that I will say is like, I have had some talks with my sponsor lately and she goes, you've got to be in 10, 11 and 12, Lisa. You have to ask um, to be doing that inventory. You have to be useful. And if you are not useful, then you are in that selfish place. And that's the emotional sobriety place for me because when I do feel the overwhelm, then I'm in self. And that's not good. That's not good. Um, And when I switch that, when I switch it and that perception change happens, it's all different for me. It's just all different. It sounds silly, but it is like it is. I don't need to, be living in self-pity because what happens is that just spirals into worse and worse and worse i was just watching on tv last night like the Lois wilson story Mm -hmm. and i'm it was so enlightening to see where bill like they were flat broke for so many years and like she was such a codependent, and all the stuff is just spiraling out of control and they're broken, they're broke. But you know, he just stuck to helping others. And then she goes into helping the other women in Al-Anon. And I'm like, I'm watching this for a reason. Right.
0: Like, Send me that link when you get a chance. Cause I don't, I don't know that I've seen so it.
1: Good. Oh. And I'm like, all right, I get it. I get it. And God always brings that kind of stuff for me when I need it. Right. Like, That's our found, it's like nothing ensures permanent sobriety and really permanent peace and freedom for me, Pej. Mm -hmm. Like I want to stay free. Mm -hmm. Like I can't up my meds. I can't like fix my circumstances. Like my mom's going through what she is. I'm here in Florida. Like I can't get mad at any of that. Right. Just gotta be useful. And that's going to bring me the freedom and the emotional stability.
0: It's, it's really interesting that you bring up Lois and Bill, because obviously, like when you're in the 12-step world, it all came from Bill and Bob, right? Those were the founders of the program. Lois was the codependent wife. Lois knew nothing about Al-Anon. Lois yeah. had to create Al-Anon. Yes. And there's a reason there's a chapter in that book, like about like. To the wives. To the wives. And I had chills. And the family afterwards. And why, why is it that. I think it happened for Lois and it happens for a lot of people that I see now when I work in the field. People don't know how to deal with their addict or alcoholic husband, wife, brother, sister, friend. When they're on a spiritual basis, they don't know how to, they're like, I'm so used to fucking fixing him or (laughs) her from when they're fucked up that I don't know what the fuck to do with this. Like he's all, he's never here anymore. He's going to those meetings. He's always helping people. Lois was fucking she was forced to have to do something. So what did she do? She pretty much replicated what Bill was doing and created her program for the people who are the codependents, for the people who are the Al Anons or the Naranons or what all the different people who, who we become their qualifiers, right? Like I've been I've I've been to Al Anon meetings and been heard that i'm labeled as the qualifier i qualify but it is a family disease so and and that goes for other d- d- diseases too there's a lot of people that have uh husbands or wives with sex addictions yeah. they don't realize like this is a fucking illness like it's not it's it's something that hopefully god willing the person can work through but hopefully you can mend yourself too and work through it too with whatever damage has been done as a result of that stuff and it goes on and on with many different things so i i, I love that you brought that up because uh If anything, like I'm a a history buff, like I like to really delve deep and go back and see where the fuck did all of this originate from when it comes to the 12 step world and look how far we've come. Like, it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, So as far as helping people now, when this is like when I because, you know, on a daily basis, I interact with so many different people and so many different emotions. And often I get told by some of my closest friends, like, I don't know how you do it. And sometimes, like I don't know how I do it. Like some some people can really be draining, like because of uh, the ups and downs. But I think to myself, like, and I like what you said about like not having to up your meds. Um, I believe in depression. I believe it's real. I believe in clinical depression. I believe in mental mental health disorders. Most definitely, I. But part of me gets saddened by people that uh, the only way that they're going to address their depression is is by going to their doctor and getting more medication or switching their meds. And, and I believe that truly, truth be told, and I can speak on this because I've suffered from depression in my past, is is that when I get out of self and stop thinking about myself all of the time and be of service to others, I'm not in here all the time. I start right. to go here. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I don't need to keep taking medications to try to stabilize me because I, I get to actually do God's bidding. You yep. know, be of maximum service to God and his fellows. And a lot of people say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, you know, that, to each their own. You don't believe. Neither did I. I understand that you don't. And I understand why you don't or, or I'd like to understand. But here's my experience and why I do and why I had to, why I really had to start believing more so. And it's, it's one thing to like to believe in God. It's another to trust, right? Mm-hmm. To really trust, right? So I think this is remarkable. I think it's great to see how even through out your recovery process, there's been those times where you weren't really sure or you weren't, or you were in that mode where somebody had to point it out to you or put a mirror up to you and say, yo, like, wake up. This is, you know, you're headed for for disaster. Like you need to snap out of it and here's what you need to do. And you did. And you yeah. still
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, like I have a very good friend that said, Lisa, when everything falls apart, do you believe that God has your back? And I had no idea what that meant. And there's been so many times where things have just fallen apart in my life. Um, I can't even count. And each time, He's protected me. Like each time. And um, no, and then no, there's been times
0: blown everything
1: up, even in sobriety, where like I've. You know, there's a there's a piece. There's still a piece of me that doesn't believe that I'm good enough or that I deserve it. You know, and I was thinking about that yesterday. Like, there is like one little piece of my life where I haven't totally gotten abundance around my finances, right? Hmm. And you know, we're talking about the, the 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 emotional sobriety. Like, there's so much in my life that works, but yet I will still sabotage my finances. I will still allow that to come unglued. And it goes deep into my childhood, right? Like it goes deep, so deep. And I'm like, I was just thinking, I'm like, there's some, there's still some wreckage financially that I have to clean up. And until I clean that up, that unmanageability that I will never have abundance until I totally clean that wreckage up
0: you know, it's interesting you say that. One of the people from that society of our our friends from that group, one time I was talking about still having um, economic insecurities, right? Yeah. And they mentioned, well, maybe there are some financial amends that you haven't yet made. hmm Right. And then another thing that you were talking about when you think things are falling apart, um O used to often say this, and I don't know if she coined it or not, but when she would speak, she'd say, just when you think things are falling apart, they're actually coming together. Mm. Right. And it, I mean, if it's in God's world, that 1% of whatever it is, we've got to give that 1% to God. too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's times that I find that I'm holding on to it and I'm like, okay, so that's me with that, that selfish piece, right. That, that, that like and people will be like, well, I'm taking my will back. No, because I never gave it to him. Right? <laughs> I'm still in that playing the god piece. I'm That's still right. because selfishness and self centeredness is my default. Mm-hmm. That's me by nature. Right. Mm-hmm. I,
0: I often think too, like a lot of you said, like the part of you when you were younger. Right. I I often think to myself like. How many babies do we actually see that are born that are seeing, like sitting in their crib or sitting out in the living room, that are sitting there like depressed and thinking, oh my God, (laughs) my life life just sucks so bad. Yeah. Everything's falling apart. I can't find my pacifier. (laughs) It's the end of the world, right? Or I haven't had milk in a half an hour. Like, yeah. This shit. I'm so overwhelmed. (laughs) Kids don't think that way. I think babies. Like animals, like when you look at them, they—that's the art of living in the fucking moment. Like they're the moment; they're not future tripping. They're not stuck in the past. Uh -uh. It's—it's just about change my diapers, feed me, and caress me, hold me, nourish me, love me. That's it, right? Right. As we grow up. We start to take on certain things, whether we have a depressed parent, an alcoholic family member, um, uh, the kids from up the street that we are trying to look up to or that we feel like they're putting us down or will never amount to what we think they are. All those different things. So I believe that um, I I personally like when I'm on my recovery path, like just being who I am and what I do, I often tell people, listen, like I know you're going through some shit. And like when I hear this stuff, like I care about you so much because I, I hate to see you suffering, but I can't climb into your head and like maneuver shit to make you like try to see things the way that I see them. But I can tell you my experience. Yeah. Like I can tell you like how I used to feel like that and what I used to do. And I love when people ask questions. So what did you used to do? What do you do? Like how I try to tap into something greater than myself on a daily basis. I get in a submissive pose and I try to pray to the higher source, which I very comfortably now call God. I'm not hung up on the word, the God word anymore, but I I believe in something greater than me that I trust is, is, is my guiding force and my guiding light throughout this journey of life. Why would people, God didn't want us to come on this earth so that we suffer.
1: No way.
0: No. And I had no
1: idea that, I was so blocked off from that God too, I had no idea that my fear, my self-centeredness, my um, insecurity, my not good enough, my like all of those things kept me from having a relationship or feeling or seeing or hearing or knowing that God. Mm -hmm. My God, I didn't know that like I'm in the way of that. I didn't know. Yeah. And that's one thing that that's been so wonderful about the 12 steps is that's given me the ability to get all that stuff away out of the way, Hmm. you know, so I can have like a clear path to like a different thinking, a different feeling and like a different consciousness with God. Like I can just be right and know that God is running this show and I don't have to run anything anymore. Like Absolutely. that's the beautiful part,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, yeah. being on a different plane. Like I like, I mean, when I am upset about something, if I can just stop, pause, even meditate, like the answers come.
0: Right. right. Mm-hmm. A good friend of mine often says the pain is in the resistance.
1: Yeah, it's true.
0: And yeah. I don't have
1: to resist. I mean, no, that, I resist. that's being free of all of it. Right. right. And that's being Emotionally sober too. Like I don't fight anything anymore. Like even with the challenges I'm facing with my mother, um, somebody said, "Like I know you're, you know, you're going through something." I'm like, you know what? Yes and no, because like I don't have to fight it. I can just let it happen, and and God's gonna handle it. Like I don't have to fight it today.
0: Mm-hmm. Love it.
1: Yeah. So, to answer your question, long story long, I'm doing just fine and I'm not running any show. It's <laughs>
0: Good. Going
1: to be great. And it's going to be handled by something a lot bigger than me.
0: Well, seeing some of the comments here today, just these like, love this, um, exactly, love your story. Um, I think that you, I don't think, I know, you help a lot of people.
1: Thanks, Pesh. <laughs> I mean, I've had you.
0: I've heard you speak in a a meeting one time a couple of times and i was instantly drawn to like she's a real one she she's one that i i I like the way she speaks like you're one of my favorites so keep doing what you're doing why am i coughing so bad right now anyway it was such an honor and a privilege to have you on today i hope that when you do move back we get to hang out more And um, I value my friendship with you very much. And I love you very much.
1: Me too. And it was a true honor to be on here. I loved speaking with you today. And I mean, hey, I'll keep watching. And I love you too.
0: (laughs) Remember, each one, teach one. Teach one, reach one. You're doing good work out there. I can't wait to see you again. Have a good rest of your day. Love you all. Thank you for all coming on the show. And uh, until we meet again, bye. Bye Bye-bye.